three, two, two, one. one. Let's, Let's go! go! <laughs> I'm the host of the PBE Podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer, joined by uh, co-host and the man, the Stan, Keith from Magma Chem Research Institute. And, uh, and we get to sit down today and talk geomechanics, you know, the idea of how the earth is stressing in reservoir uh, where we're getting our fluids from, where we're getting these resources from, either in oil and gas or uh, or mining. And then if you're putting fluids back in, like carbon sequestration, you know, you got to understand the integrity of the rock, the competence of the rock, how it's breaking, the stresses of it, the strains of it. Uh, and we got to sit down with Corey Furr. Corey Furr, please, sir, introduce yourself and welcome to the PB Podcast. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for the time, Troy. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to meet you, Stan. My name is Corey Fair. I'm the founder and president of Integrity in Situ. We've developed a downhole tool for measuring rock strength and stress conditions in situ with direct physical measurements of the open hole wellbore wall. Worked on this, uh, actually developing the downhole tool since 2013, 2014. Yep. Been- yep. Started the uh, business up in mid-2013, got the business plan arrived at and some funding and filed a patent and a couple of years later we started to run the tool 2016 late february 2016 is when we first uh, put this whole this tool in the hole right on and uh what kind of dropped out for the from the show for you anything uh, in particular dropped out in 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 the conversations we've had and, and what things we thought thought about well um you know the the overall interest level in geomechanics and um applications <clears throat> it's always fascinating to me to talk to folks from different aspects of the patch as to what those are or can be and it's uh it's nice to see the interest and to hear the questions and it's uh it's it's informative and really satisfying to speak to something that you know obviously i'm i'm no gym mechanics expert but i, I know enough to hang myself and Luckily, I've got a lot of experts that keep me from doing so from time to time. But it's always a pleasure to speak to something that I'm very passionate about. Uh, Like I said, uh, not being a geomechanics expert, but developing technologies become uh, very exciting to me. And and growing a team and providing a solution to clients is is always very satisfying to speak about. Right on. Stan, anything uh, generally about like how 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 the thing accomplishes this and collects the data and, and the value of the data? Well, it's it's a real time uh, analysis that is a lot more efficient uh, in terms of collecting all the uh, stress regime you need for present day stress, and that's going to be have exploration utility in both mining, oil and gas. Oh yeah. So on the mining side, I thought it would be interesting. You know how how does the mining industry typically uh, use geomechanics to to bet like to start breaking down the rock or have an idea of how they're going to either open pit this well, thing or... in the same way that the oil business is using it to figure out what the permeabilities are and how much resource volume there is it's following what kind of crack uh-huh the apertures the whole night but they, these guys can do it closer to real time and in real world situations that's what I find interesting. Right. Yeah. And your experience of uh, 30 plus years of, of kind of helping operators find deposits uh, in the mining industry is, is, uh, is it core, the core data comes out and there's a lot of geomechanics testing. Yeah, they do a lot of that. Okay. 
So it's yeah, very but similar. It's the same kind of thing. Chasing the cracks. Yeah. That's a big deal. That's what I love about it. That's that's certainly what I got from it is this idea that uh, you know, every field and every deposit and every resource has a sto- a structural story that's driving the fractionation and how the chemistry and how the resource is chemically putting itself together. The structure is kind of the, the 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 floor plan or the road the the blueprints of how kind of things are going to fractionate and which way they're going to vector well it controls the fluid flow path it controls the fluid flow path at the time of the deposition at the time the resources is yeah, fractionating a lot of these things are paleo so it gets pretty inferential if you try to push this back in time <laughs> all we're doing is taking a present day instant snapshot of that right. problem yeah, but how the fluids actually broke through the rock could have been perpendicular to today's stresses or some other oh, yeah. thing. But still, it's going to influence how you get the stuff out. Yeah. yeah how you yeah. produce it. I like that green pattern you got going on your wall. What the heck kind of oh, pattern is this? <laughs> oh, man. You don't want to know. Yes, he does. Okay. What do you mean? Serpent. <laughs> It's the rock serpent. Sorry? It's the rock serpent night. Okay. Okay. It's cool. going to change the way you look at the world. Yeah. Well, every time. Awesome. Good for you. It's not just entertainment. But it's uh, it's backed inside by inside geology. Yes, it's backed by a long story of <laughs> geology. But it's okay. Cool. Pretty good job. You know, it kind of blends right into the wall there. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, looks like you're inside a piece of it. That's right. That's the whole point. <laughs> we call it the Serpentosphere. Ah, very nice. Yep. Uh, a new series on Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> Serpentosphere Studio, yes. <laughs> Corey Fair, thank you for joining the PBE podcast. Um, this is the conception part of the show where we get to sit back and really, I, I just want to know exactly the, the story. Rock it back mm-hmm. as far as you can. I want to know your mom, sure. your dad, your brothers, sisters. <laughs> I don't, you know, how did you become Corey Fair, the CEO, president, C- mm-hmm. and yep. C- founder, inventor, president, whatever, all that kind of, of stuff. Of integ- integrity in situ, you know, so, so kind of walk us through this story of kind of how that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we usually run this for about 20 minutes or so and might poke in and ask some questions or whatnot, but, sure. uh, yeah, let's rock it back. How did this all start? Okay. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's, it's, it's always a, a privilege when people ask, uh, are willing to give you their time and, and want some of yours. It's, it's a, it's an absolute honor. So thanks so much for having me guys. I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> well, I've had uh, an interesting background because I started Literally, back in 1995, uh, 1996, folding cardboard boxes at Core Labs. And it was a summer gig that turned into much more. I would take these flat cardboard cutouts, fold them all up. Somebody would slap some core. We'd put the core in the box. We'd label it, put it on a shelf, and then it would go for testing eventually. In time, I, I got really good at folding these cardboard boxes and labeling them with a Sharpie. So then I got to to actually slab the core that went in the box. That was a big promotion. And then I got good at slabbing the core. And then I got to work in the lab that was testing the core. And I got really good at all that. So then I got to run the lab that was testing the core. And uh, that was the mid-90s, like I said, mid to later 90s. The industry has always had its cycles. How did you get this job? 
How'd you get the job? That was through a buddy I met through some other friends from high school, actually. This is right after high school. I finished high school in 95. <clears throat> I didn't go back to secondary school till, uh, till later on in my life. I went back to post-secondary four times as an adult, like a dummy, but <laughs> you don't know what you want to do. So you don't go back, I guess. You just keep right. making money and, and then find an area of interest and, and get dedicated to it and, and go from there. That's right. Some people have got that uh, convoluted path and I sure did. So yeah, a friend of mine from high school was actually dating one of the fellows who had been at Core Labs and he got me the job. And uh, after one of the downturns, I went to computer school because this was all late 90s. Everything was all about e-commerce and JavaScript and websites and blah, blah, blah. And oh, yeah. I went to programming school and, and that was a lot of fun. I worked as a programmer for a few years. And then a buddy who was working in the coal bed methane industry, he was running a lab here in Calgary. And they'd take these core samples of coal samples or core coal cores, wow. run a bunch of lab processes, measure the gas that came off them. It's called desorption. <clears throat> and then write a report for the client to tell them how much gas they had in a particular area. So I was working in his lab and working on a lot of spreadsheets and, and formulas and things like this because of my computer background. He figured that I'd be good at that. And it was, it was, it was nice. And um, eventually I was doing a lot of work uh, in the field as well with that company. And then eventually I was helping write the reports for all those gas in place contents. And that outfit was owned by GRI in the States and the Canadian company was called GTI. And the, uh, the locals in Calgary were upset that these folks with brand new equipment and federal funding essentially from the U.S. government in the form of FERC and GRI were now competing with these local mom and pops. So they got all wound up and, and GRI was forced to make a decision whether they're going to take the FERC funding going forward or, or stop competing with GTI. Wow. So they said, well, we'll, uh, we'll pull out. And so all the equipment wow. got sold off and everybody uh, went their separate ways. And I became a consultant at that point to help GTI finish off the reporting that was in, in progress. And that led to consulting here and there. And I set up a desorption lab for another outfit here in Calgary and, and consulted to another company and eventually did some sort of expert witness type of stuff due to my experience with all this uh, guest in place reporting and the lab work and went to Nexon as a reservoir engineering technologist. In the meantime, I went to technical school here for uh, reservoir engineering as well as geology, loved both of those fields. And then eventually I went to a different university in Calgary for project management and I got my PMP and ended up at an oil sands company where after mm. close to by the end of that, that stint, it was about six and a half or seven years. I was the operations coordinator. So I'd see every contract and every invoice and I'd be on the rig during our drilling programs, which were all very seasonal because in the oil sands, you've got to wait for muskeg areas to freeze in. You've got to build ice roads. Um, the mines, the mines are 24 seven all year, but the, a lot of areas you just can't access unless it's winter because you need to freeze in a lot of leases and wow. campsites and things like this because there's a lot of muskeg up in northern Alberta around the oil sands. It's a, there's a lot of what um, you're saying? What are you saying? It's called muskeg. Think of a really mossy area where maybe you got a couple feet of moss and then below that is water. Jeez. It's just low-lying land. And in the winter, it does freeze and you can drive on it. But even then, there's a specific process to add a lot of water 
to create a thick enough ice bed that you can make a road out of it. And they're called ice roads. And it's kind of like that show on Discovery Channel, Ice Road Truckers. Yeah. Those yeah. those are on lakes and things, but they're also on frozen roads in the backwoods. And so a lot of the oil sands activity happens in about a four-month span, kind of uh, depending on where exactly you are and how close to a, a main thoroughfare you are. You might be able to start building your access network in November simply by having large water trucks with huge floater tires that are meant to exert a really low ground pressure. And they'll just drive up and down these back roads, dumping water everywhere. And then a a grader will go and scuff it all up and they'll, they'll pound it down with these vehicles and keep batting water until you have a road that's literally two feet, three feet of ice. And it's, it gets fresh snow on it and stuff like this. And people will drive on certain sections with chains on is their tires. The, is it the state or county or, or government's job to do that to the roads? Or is that the operator that's doing all that? The operator. Holy yep. smokes. There's there's very few permanent roads that are actual high-grade asphalt roads. There's a, a decent amount that are gravel, but those will still get treated in the wintertime. But then a lot of the roads that go into these exploration areas... Uh, they have to be frozen in every year, and it's a big deal. It's very expensive. It takes a long time. You have to get the right weather as well, and the weather will come, but it might not be there when you want it. So you've got rigs waiting on standby. You've got to get your camp in and set up within like five days. As soon as those wow. roads are open, you it's, get as many loads in as you can. It's and, time to uh, go. Oh, it's unbelievable. And then once once you're in, you might have two months to drill 200 wells. What? Yep. I've been on programs where we drilled one we one year we drilled 353 wells in 2 months. Well, that season was probably closer to three and a half maybe, what? but you don't have a long time, yeah. That's 10 wells a by, day. Yeah, you'll have that that season we had 16 rigs at one point. Oh my gosh, drilling how yeah. deep? Oh, that's uh that's that was mine delineation, so it was shallow, maybe 200 meters. 200 meters, so 600 yes. feet, something like that. Yeah, they're, they're quick, but it's still a lot of people. Are you have kidding? 500 people in a camp and you've got vehicles all over the place. What? But what, what gets really interesting is when the weather starts to turn in the other direction, because now you've got to get everybody out quickly and you'll, you'll kiss goodbye a ton of wells that you had surveyed and got licensed and stuff like wow. that, but you just can't access them. And then as the weather starts to change, if you don't have big equipment out quickly, you'll need cats and chains and big, wow. big vehicles pulling through the mud to get people back to the highway. Oh. And sometimes you'll be crossing, well, there's always creek crossings or river crossings. And you got to be across that creek before it's no longer solid. Wow. So it's, it's a big deal. <laughs> and the river crossings, um, the one river, uh, the big river up, up north is the Athabasca. <clears throat> and you'll see uh, auger holes throughout the width of the bridge every whatever it is 50 meters 150 feet something like that to flood the surface of the frozen section and they'll just make that that ice pack that much thicker every single day so they'll build this huge thick section of ice over top of the river and you'll drive these huge vehicles across it you have to go really slowly as you see on those ice trucker roads as well or shows you roll your window down, maybe you have your seatbelt off in case the ice cracks, so you can bail. Nobody, I haven't seen that personally. Yeah, <clears throat> but I've crossed many of those uh, those 
those river crossings and it's a little bit uh, it's interesting the first couple of times you can hear the ice cracking sometimes <laughs> but, oh um, man yeah no, yep, it's, yeah it's interesting wow all right so, so you got sir, sir these are ice bridges across the river yeah exactly and it's basically just a thick section of ice yeah. across the river yeah ice bridges across the river okay so you have service experience you've been consulting and specializing mm -hmm. in in things around core and measuring gases that coming out of the core all that absorption desorption all yep. that stuff uh and right. now you got operating experience yep yeah i worked for an operator for the one cbm operator was almost three years and then the oil sands operator was almost seven years so about about yeah, my career's been almost fifty fifty between the service side and the operator side. Right on. That's pretty unique. And now and then so at the end of that seven year stint with the Athabasca Sands, the heavy oils, you know, doing all that, you uh you then start integrity in situ or where is that that's the turn? Yep. Yeah. So it was twenty thirteen and with oil sands you've basically got two types of projects. You've got a mine. A surface mine, just like any other surface mine on the planet, where everything gets dug up from surface with big electric shovels. <clears throat> you separate the overburden from the ore. The ore gets processed. The overburden gets put back into their pit for reclamation in time. And if you don't have a mine project because of the depth of burial and it's just not economically feasible to remove that much material, you'll have an in situ play where you're going to inject steam or solvent or a combination thereof. And you'll use that chemical process to mobilize the bitumen because the bitumen when it's in situ is not going to flow. It's basically of a, a really, really oily sand. So it won't flow on its own, but if you hit it with steam for six months, it will loosen up and it'll just, it'll, it'll start to drip. So you'll have horizontal wells quite often go into that reservoir. You'll inject steam through the top well and the bottom well will be full of pumps. And once that bitumen starts to drip, it'll it'll get pumped out by the producer oh they actually the heat, surface they heat from above and then the liquid yep. falls gravity falls to the deeper zone yep, the deeper well yeah the the injectors on top and then the producer below it with pumps <clears throat> wow and there's uh you can do that with steam you can do it with solvent you can do it with a steam solvent combination some people will uh will cycle the steam they'll use one well as the injector and the producer and they'll cycle steam for x amount of weeks or months and then they'll shut it off the steam and the formation is still very very hot stan, and the steam is still there and then they'll pump out of the same well stan what's the difference between bitumen and carrageen <laughs> depends on who you talk to i'm asking you stan <laughs> well classic bitumen is if you're doing it from an analytical perspective it's what's left over after you try to dissolve the carriage and you hit it with a solvent that's like hexane yeah and what the soluble component of it which is about 15 to 20 percent is what they call bitumen but you can also have bitumens have been called uh oil after it dries up so what 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 is it chemically well that was a question i was going to ask him but well basically if you think about think about sweet crude light light oil and you think about it if it's been cooked for too long in a pot and all the the light ends are driven off those light hydrocarbons and you're left with a really gooey thick molasses so alkane kind of like dirty 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 motor oil well sludge it's, basically it's, yeah it's aromatic it's, oil it's heavy aromatics 
Yeah. Right. It's been it's been degraded biologically to the point where um, it's it's just kind of a raw material. But what's wonderful about it is that it's a feedstock for so many products. You can use oh, it yeah. for gasoline, use it for jet fuel, use it for upgrading and make synthetic oil. Whereas light sweet, you can't do that with a lot of uh, certain hydrocarbon products. You if you can. like, I actually have some sample vials of what oil sense ah. is, and I can put it up close to the screen and or to the camera and show you exactly what it is. I would be interested in take a look at that. Yeah. Okay. One second. Nice. Uh, All right. This reminds me of what I was doing in the oil sands for the Norwegian. You got to scoot up to the mic a little bit. You're a little too far away. Okay, so this vial here, uh, it probably won't show up real well. This okay. vial, yeah. Let me put it in my hand. I'll see if I can shake some out of the jar. Put it in my hand. Just think of a uh, if you went to the beach and you had some dirty motor oil and you poured it into the sand. I would love to do exactly that. What I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's exactly what it looks like. So, uh, can you see that very uh, well? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, that's oil sand. That's raw oil sand straight from either a mine or from an outcrop. And there are a lot of places along the Athabasca River where the oil sand outcrops. And the black stuff you, in the sand is bitumen. Is that what, yep. that's the idea? Exactly. So, you take the oil sand and it goes into a few different processes, but generally a big centrifuge full of hot water and different chemicals wow. and this kind of thing. And you'll separate the sand wow. from the bitumen. And then that bitumen gets mixed with diesel to keep it nice <laughs> and mobile. And then it gets pumped as it's called dill bit, diluted bitumen. And the diluent is diesel and it gets pumped down to Texas and gets refined. And then we buy it back because we're a bunch of dummies that don't <laughs> understand that we could probably do that ourselves. Build your own refineries, not, but not, okay. <laughs> right. Hey, we're neighbors, so you know, we got to work together. There you go. <laughs> so you, uh, so you take this, you know, dirty, dirty sand that's full of this bitumen and then it goes through that cleaning process. And this is what it looks like afterwards. This is what's called uh, what coarse tailings, coarse tails. Oh, that's what the sand looks like after. Yeah, right. it just looks like beach sand. So you can kind of gray, but, see that. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 nice. Is that showing up okay? Yeah, it's yeah. showing up good. So that's what happens once it's been separated. And then you're left with this baby. There we bitumen. go. That's, that's raw bitumen right there. Black gold. Yep, exactly. And it's used as a uh, feedstock for a ton of processes, and you can create a lot of wonderful hydrocarbon-based products with it. So it's it's a very valuable product. And uh, anyway, that's what it's all about in the oil sands. Wow. And so that's uh, that's kind of what I was working on for a while. And when it comes to the uh, um, the other type of project with the, with the steam generation, where Integrity Institute came from, was born out of the frustrations involved with collecting data very relevant to that process because if you think about injecting steam into the ground mm -hmm. if you don't just think of a pot you're cooking some macaroni for your kids or maybe for yourself some people love kd <laughs> i don't mind it uh, for leftovers once in a while but <clears throat> if you got a pot of water and you get a lid on it when you start creating steam inside that pot your lid starts to dance around right right and you'll, you'll boil over 
while a steam chamber in the ground will do the same thing to the layer of rock above where you're injecting that steam. So you think about your layer of bitumen and these things are 30, 50 feet thick. Nice. The great reservoir. If you don't have a layer of rock above that, that's competent and strong as you inject steam, you'll pop that lid. Really? It's a very, yeah, yeah. it's a very real problem. It's called cap rock integrity. And the same thing is imperative to uh, CO2 sequestration projects. Ooh, they got a cap CO2 sequestration's got some other challenges, of course, as Uh well. But uh, when it comes to the oil says, Does it cause earthquakes or what's the big problem with that? Uh, no, no. The issue is that if you if you end up failing your cap rock, that steam is going to escape, and it's going to uh, go up. Okay, so it's and I'll show you a, I'll show you a picture in the presentation of what happens, what can happen when that steam escapes. So you what? Don't want that to happen <clears throat> in uh, just basic, you know, real quick, high level. What's what t- what seems to typically make a good cap rock that can sustain this pressure buildup and and keep the cap integrity going? versus typically mm-hmm. a bad one you know is there is there like obvious things like hey that's a dolomite yeah. cap stay away from it that one's a shale or you know what's your take on mm-hmm. it? well it's it's typically a shale but you want something that's very low permeability and low porosity the better and one you want something that's yeah and you, you want something that's very thick as well I because gotcha. if you do have some sort of an issue on a granular level you have a better chance of stopping it from escaping if it's got to go through 10 meters of that material versus one meter Right. Um, okay. Depth of burial is a, is a good one as well. Add some overburden to that material, but it's it's in the oil sands. It's typically a shale. So the company I was working at, we had a very unconventional cap rock scenario. So we were looking at the geomechanical picture quite closely, and being the operations coordinator, I had a great deal of exposure to the process of how we find those answers as far as the data set and the lab testing and the mini fracks and capturing core for that specific purpose. And as a client, it was really frustrating. It took forever to get information from the lab. There were several processes involved in that data collection uh, timeline, Uh, things like Minifrax. You have to rent a wellhead and and get separate vendors out there to do those tests. And you have to try to do the best you can with your core recovery so that the lab's got something to work with because the lab's doing physical tests. Can you explain and, a mini frack real quick? What does that mean exactly? Yeah, mini frack is uh, known as a defit. You've probably heard of defits. defits. Okay. So basically, think of a very small scale frack job. Very small volumes of water, but high pressures. Wow. So you want to inject water into a formation until you break it down. And once you know you've broken it down, you let that fracture heal. And then you see, now that you know you have a fracture in place and it's closed, mm-hmm. how much force does it take to activate the fracture? Mm-hmm. And so that is a parameter called minimum in situ stress, fracture closure pressure. Nice. And that goes into the geomechanical modeling. And that fracture closure pressure is typically the injection pressure that you have to stay below when you're creating a steam chamber. Otherwise, you'll fracture your cap rock and uh, the steam's going somewhere you don't want it to. That's why you're yep. doing that test. You're not actually interested in how much it takes to frack it and open it up to like create porosity and permeability you're you're doing it because you want to find the limit of where not to go exactly you don't want to fracture that rock right with your steam chamber but it happens so um having gone through that process and at the end of the day when the lab does give you your report 
you don't necessarily have the level of certainty that you wish you had because it's based on a disturbed core sample that you took out of the ground. And the lab then went through steps one through 14 to try to reproduce the in-situ condition. So if you're kind of looking at the data sideways, you've paid a lot of money to get it. You've waited a very long time to get it. And um, mm. in my particular case, as the client of that process, I found it very frustrating. And having been an entrepreneur since I was a teenager, I, I saw an opportunity mm. and I knew of some technologies that could help address the problem. Okay. And so that's that's how Integrity is that you came to be. Okay. Not just the mini frac deal, but we're going to go into kind of all the different things that that you were waiting on as a client, spending yep. months and then figuring out and then and then introducing all these complexities to doing it in a lab that's not doing it downhole in situ, like a little bit more real of an environment. You go on to recreating all those this this what we think the environment is downhole temperature wise, pressure wise, right? You do it all in the lab and then you test the rock and you're getting all that data back. You're saying, OK, there's got to be a, a more efficient way to go about getting that data than mm -hmm. this process that I just went through. I like that. As an entrepreneur, since you're teenagers, what was your first gig? What was your first uh, idea? I'll, I'll match it with mine. <clears throat> well, my parents were always entrepreneurs. They, they, my dad ran a hotel in Uranium City a long time ago. And I was talking to him just uh, yesterday about this because a buddy of mine just came up a project at a place called Cigar Lake, which is near Uranium City. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mom worked for him at a hotel in my hometown in Melfort, Saskatchewan. And then they moved to Calgary to start up the maids home cleaning business. It was a franchise called the maids, yellow cars, green lettering. The D was a vacuum. <laughs> you may have seen it over the years. I don't know if they still exist, but they ran that uh, for quite a while. I think it was 12 years or something like that. And this kind of thing. So I, I watched them do that, but I also then watched them get into Amway and I was 14 and uh, my parents were always listening to these motivational tapes and business structure tapes in the car, all about Amway, all these speakers. And it was fun. And uh, I learned a lot. I, I love that kind of stuff. So I actually, my, my first real foray into business was drawing circles for Amway when I was 14. I was in my parents, my friends' parents' living rooms, drawing circles on a whiteboard, trying to sell them the Amway business plan and sell them products. So that's, uh, that's where I learned wow. rejection and how to handle <laughs> getting told no every single time. You got very and familiar then, with Venn diagrams then. Oh yeah. Yeah, for nice. sure. Um, and then beyond that, uh, I was part owner of a, a fast food chicken franchise in the Philippines that was eventually bought by Jollibee. <laughs> and, um, I owned wow. a vending, vending franchise for DVDs. Remember Redbox? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I owned one of those, but it wasn't Redbox, different company, but okay. same thing. Same and I also idea. owned, uh, I also owned a massage clinic for a long time. Whoa! And that was just for cash flow, right? Just not stuff that I necessarily had ever dreamed about or was <laughs> yeah. passionate about. Yeah. But I, I wanted something on the side because uh, the patch is what it is, and nice. making sure that I had cash flow to uh, to do my thing was was part of it all. So, um, right. yeah, when I was working in 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 the oil sands and, and saw what was going on with that process. I thought there's, there's just definitely a better way. And I, I did know of some dental tools that could help with that. 
So I started talking to a bunch of experts that were way better and far more knowledgeable at those things than I was. Um, told them if I'd use this tool with the, that, those parameters and those outputs and combine them with this tool and this tool, would it be what people want now and need now for these geomechanical data sets? And I was told again and again that yes, it would. So that's where it all started. Right on. Okay. Uh, I think we got a, a really good uh, recap or just kind of an idea of kind of your experience and your your journey into uh, into drilling down into into exactly what this is and uh, and mm-hmm. for sure I, I'm really interested to see this presentation and we'll probably have some uh, some more questions at the end of it but let's uh, oh, I have some questions up front you probably won't let me in Stan wants to go up front with some questions let's do it Stan yeah um, okay so I I worked up in the oil sands back in about 2008 2009 with Stan Oil on their yep. remember their SAG D project. Mm-hmm. Question one: Are they still up there? No, <clears throat> I don't think that Stat Oil is in the. Uh, I don't think they are anyway. So what happened in in Alberta back in the mid early two thousand to two thousand ten? SAG D was was becoming very prevalent, and and we had some big mines that were rocking and rolling, and you had. 40 or 50 companies up there at one point. Right. And some were, some were the big internationals, but most of them were very small local companies with a lot of expertise, um, with investors from wherever backing their drilling programs and doing all sorts of exploration far and wide to find the limits of the oil sands deposit, because there is definitely a limit to it. And there's a, there's a small area where it's, it's mineable beyond the mining uh, region then you're getting into SAG-D or some other yeah, version. south of, of the mines, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and, and and even to the north and, and northeast. The last project I was on, we were the most northeasterly pro- property in Alberta, and we were only something like two miles from Saskatchewan. Mm. And there are oil sands in Saskatchewan mm-hmm. uh, as well. But but when the, the, the first big crash came and whatever that was, 2008, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of companies disappeared and some persevered. Uh, our company was bought by Total and we became much smaller and fewer properties and this kind of thing. And then the next crash, I guess, would have been 2011. And we were actually bought again by tech tech resources, <laughs> mostly hard rock mining company, yeah. but they bought our oil, oil sands mine mm. uh, called Frontier. And Frontier is directly across the river from Fort Hills. I don't know if you've heard of Fort Hills, but Fort Hills is the currently the last oil sands mine in Alberta. Frontier is across the river and ready to go, but then the government changed, and now you can't. I'm not sure, and I don't want to get political because it'll really wind me up. But <laughs> the government, when it changed hands in 2014, 2015, um, it, and the market had already started to crash then too. Uh, but they put some some laws in place that basically made it impossible to put large projects in the ground, regardless Whoa. of what the nature of that project was. That's called Bill C-68, I believe. And then there's another one, Bill C-49, maybe, or C-41. I don't know. There's been so many bills put up by the government. <clears throat> hmm. But the other one was basically saying you can't actually ship oil off of the coast of Canada unless it's from this one spot. And even then, you're limited to two boats a week that type of thing. So it was basically saying Canada's off the market 
for wow. creating these big projects and getting it to market. Wow. That was 2014, and, uh, 2014. Uh, that's, that's around when it started. Yep. Wow. So price of oil had, had, had certainly started to drop as well. Right. But, um, with these new rules, the, the social license went away in Canada and Alberta for oil and gas explorers. And all of those small companies went bye-bye. Wow. Now, excuse and my, they it, were bought up. That's okay. I should say, and all of those properties are bought up by some big multinational companies. So now there's, I don't know, maybe there's a dozen big operators in the oil sands, but all the little guys are gone. Wow. Yeah. So um, a question I have is, did, did you ever do any before after chemical analyses of what the heavy oil sands were before you applied steam to them and then after you applied steam to them? Mm, personally, no. You know, in terms <clears> of <throat> sure classic that, oil sure chemistry. Of... Sorry? Classic, you know, like alkane contents, et cetera. Mm. I personally haven't had any experience with that, Stan. I'm sure that a lot of operators have done a multitude of before and afters because, yeah, hitting any any chemical or fluid or, or mineralogy <clears throat> will affect uh, the composition of it. There's a little bit of upgrading that happens uh, in situ, actually, and it, it is a production technique that some operators use. Cook it with whichever chemicals and steam for long enough, and then when you pump it out, it's partially upgraded. Yeah, so you've lightened it. Yep. Um, has, did anybody ever try to use sonic or acoustics? Yep. Yep. That's happening now. There's a there's a pilot project that just released some results about two weeks ago, and I believe it's RF. It's radio frequencies, kind of like using a microwave downhole mm -hmm. to excite all the particles and get mm -hmm. things mobilized that way. And uh, so similar, not exactly the same as. As uh, Sonic, I, I don't know enough about the wavelengths and whatnot to speak intelligently to it, but yeah, that there's been a bunch of different things attempted. Nice. And yeah. how have yeah. they gone? They've had success. Uh, I think they've been running a pilot for about four years mm. to try to get production, and they are producing now. I don't know if the volumes are viable. I, I, I'm not sure. I don't even remember the name of the company, but uh, yeah, if you look up RF, uh, radio frequency oil sands, you'll probably find, find the company without too much digging. Ah, cool. Interesting. Um, Very so, interesting. So, uh, excuse my ignorance a little bit here, but I'm curious because uh, you talked about politics a little bit, and I don't want to rev you up, but I just want to <laughs> get a better idea. My uh, my old man sure. uh, was born in Kenora, uh, so he's Canadian. Uh, but anyway, yes. uh, you, you mentioned uh, that the politics – changed and that it it obviously put a little more stress on on uh canadians ab canada's ability to sell oil hydrocarbon products to the market does canada typically have the same i don't know i don't want to call it a problem but the same ideology i guess is like america you have like conservatives mm -hmm. and then you have liberals kind of percent it's just, okay oh yeah 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 it's very very similar um, and, it, it, and, and I don't know if it's as an adult, they started to pay a bit more attention and understand it a little more, but it never really seemed to be quite as polarizing as it is now. And I think it's the same for the States, but yeah. there's some pretty strong opinions now. Um, back in the day, 
it seemed to me that regardless of whether the conservatives were in power or the liberals were in power, it was kind of the same thing all the time. Right. You had a different, you had a different leader, but uh, both parties were very similar. And even now on paper, they are very similar, but the, the individual, I think is what really sticks in people's craw because there's been a lot of controversy and there's been a ton of scandals happen lately with the liberal government here in Canada over the past uh, five years, but people keep voting them in. So what are you going to do? I don't know. I, I personally uh, just try not to give them any power. Don't give them my energy and I do my thing and hire people and try to get some stuff done. And, right. you know, we're, we're licensed in Texas. Uh, we're registered as a company in Texas as well. So, oh, cool. um, yeah, in time we'll have a base of operations there too. And internationally, that kind of thing. But nice. you know, you, you got to live by the rule of the laws of land, but uh, yeah. if you're not going to run for office, the only other thing you can do is vote. Right. That's right. Yeah. If you're not going to be yeah. the change, then yeah, you can vote and try to do it that way. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, yeah, same, I think similar, very similar, actually, uh, as you say that the individual is now so <clears throat> focused on, you know, like oh, the president sure. doing all these things. And it's like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. there's like a thousand people around him. And like, you know, the whole system that has like hundreds of people that make decisions on what he says at mm-hmm. the end of the day, there's something right. else there. But anyway, I was just curious about that. That was cool. It was interesting. Uh, and I really yeah, like the you. idea that as an, as a, as a, as a company that's focusing around you know, resources and resource extraction and resource exploration and de-risking for operators. Like you're all in in Calgary, you're all in on where you've developed your knowledge and expertise, but then you definitely took what I think an obvious good business decision, which is make sure you're planted in a state like Texas that is pro resources, Mm -hmm. pro exploration, you know, really allowing people to to get after these resources and 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 rely on these things and not be distracted from that. So if Canada does decide, you know what, we're going to shut down the markets to hydrocarbons again, that would be drastic, you know, to your business. That would be that would be detrimental. But uh-huh. you can you you've now invested in a in a state and and in the United States and Texas. That's hold on, let's just focus there because you know exploration is going to be just you know kicking it uh-huh. in the butt, especially when you get some kind of major stress like that. Supply totally goes down. You know, yeah. So the prices are right, the economics are right. You go to Texas, and you you still get after it in the business. So I'm excited to learn more yeah. about the business. Yeah, thank you. I started coming down to Houston about four years ago, a couple of years before COVID, and I was just knocking on doors, pounding the pavement, trying to introduce myself to as many operators and vendors as possible, trying to make some friends and and establish some collaborative relationships because there's a ton of awesome technology out there, but they're not this. And all of the different technology groups we've met with have said that they need this to calibrate their models because the way that they extrapolate geomechanical data are based on inferences. And that's great. They've got a lot of PhDs and formulas and algorithms behind it. But the physical data is the foundation of everything. And using in-situ physical measurements, direct measurements, is, is awfully informative. So mm-hmm. um, making sure that enough people uh, heard the story and understood what we we're trying to do was why part of why I needed to start going down there, but also because the market here was so soft. The operators here incredibly pensive and and very very uh, slow adopters. Yeah. Um. And and the investment market here awful for oil and gas for wow. seven years. Seven wow. years awful, just terrible. And so 
<clears throat> getting into a, a larger marketplace was was critical. And obviously, when the price of oil and gas picks up, then everybody's much more active. But it's still a very different mindset between Canada and 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 the states. Alberta and and Calgary is kind of like Houston North, Texas North. But That's what it uh, was when I still, was there. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally. So it is a different part of the country for sure. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I love Houston. I, I come down there on a regular basis. I'll be down there in another few weeks. I'm presenting at Urtech. Nice. For the, yeah, for the U Pitch. Oh, sessions, oh nice. Whatever. Yeah. So, you pitch you wait, you pitch at Urtech? Yep. In June. Yep. Oh, I thought I thought you pitch was a part of the uh image in August, but you're gonna be there in um, June doing Urtech yeah, doing the U pitch. Yeah. Yeah, they've got multiple U pitch sessions, I believe. Okay. Yeah, I've sat in on some of that stuff. That's cool. Uh we'll be there. PBE's gonna be roaming around doing some podcasts cool. from booths and whatnot and yeah, maybe we can, we'll, we'll certainly catch up, uh, you know, mm-hmm. in person there um, yep. and get to yep. meet. Looking forward to it. Yeah, meet in person. So without further ado, let's share your screen mm-hmm. and let's dive okay. into this presentation. Let's drill down into mm-hmm. Integrity Institute. Okay. <clears throat> Geomechanics. Earth strength and stress. And it's obviously always been there, whether we knew it or not, and whether we had formulas or names for it. Um, going back to when Christ was a child, miners digging for coal would be dealing with things like slope wall stability and, and, uh, ground collapse and, and this sort of stuff. That's all geomechanics. So the miners have been dealing with it for a long time. Civil engineers, as they built tunnels and, and bridges and dams and, and anything involving the subsurface, they were having to deal with geomechanics as well. And then obviously the oil and gas industry using it all the time too from the get-go but it's become uh, a much more prominent household name over the past call it 10 or maybe even 20 years depending on which part of the patch you're in and as you gentlemen are aware there's many 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 facets to the overall gem that is the oil and gas industry Um, current applications that people think about often with geomechanics as it relates to oil and gas are frac design and Caprock Integrity for oil sands, which is a tiny portion of the market for sure. Um, CO2 sequestration, Caprock Integrity is not the only crux, but I, I think Caprock Integrity is the crux of CO2 sequestration itself, the only very important factor, but that'll be a, a very important consideration for CO2 sequestration going forward. And well worth stability, depending on the environment that you're in, you can't afford to lose that pipe and time being money everywhere time is a lot of money in some environments and as the industry has kind of played out the low-hanging fruit of conventionals and primary production plays we've started chasing things that are offshore and in deep water we've started chasing unconventionals and having to go with horizontal drilling horizontal drilling as a technology was not invented because we wanted to do something new. It was there because we had to increase the surface area of the reservoir and the borehole and fracking was also devised so that we had a, a pathway to that for, to the well bore from the formation. We never used to have to frack wells, but we do now. So this is mother is the, is the always the, sorry, necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, <clears throat> the oil and gas industry has been 
going further and further down the rabbit hole of geomechanics as they get into these more complex plays. So there's a little background there on geomechanics. Yeah, really good. Thank you. So as we've kind of alluded to, the subsurface is a pretty far out place. It's complicated. There's a thousand different specialties involved between geophysicists and geologists and reservoir engineers and completions engineering and and so on and so forth and hydrology and you name it. There's probably 40 or 50 specific disciplines to understanding the subsurface because it's a foreign environment to us. Um, Understanding the geomechanical aspects is even that much more exotic. There's not a ton of people that are experts in this field. Obviously, it's become a lot more prominent, and so you get a lot of people that understand some some key phrases and catchphrases and that kind of thing, and that's fine. But as a community, uh, the expertise on the real expertise level is fairly limited. It's definitely growing, and it's going to continue to grow. But it's an important consideration. On the left, let's turn my pointer into a laser on the left you see a you know a weak formation where you'll get some sloughing in the hole and all of a sudden your bit is stuck and you've got a a, a stuck pipe scenario which obviously is going to cost you a lot of rig time and in downhole bhas that people don't want to lose but that's a geomechanical problem i'll come i'll do this picture next i guess i talked about that cap rock failure in the oil sands that scenario this is exactly what this picture is this photo was taken in 2006 and it was, and, and it's still there. It's in Northern Alberta in the middle of the forest, thankfully. But this is what happens when you don't have a handle in your geomechanics situation. And that steam chamber causes a failure in that cap rock. Wow. The steam, chamber, yeah, the steam chamber released to surface, causing a crater the size of a football field to explode out of the ground. Uh, launching yeah. trees like missiles. What? A hole. Yeah, yeah. Launching this this hole is twenty five feet deep or so. What? Twenty feet deep, uh, and it is the size of a football stadium or football field, whatever. It's big. It's a big hole. Yeah. You shouldn't you shouldn't do that. That shouldn't ever have happened. Yeah. And obviously, if this was in a populated area, it would be a catastrophe. So the industry the oil sands industry dodged a bullet there but obviously that project was sterilized and that uh, operator was penalized and lost that entire field so this is what can happen this is a cap rock scenario a cap rock failure scenario in the oil sands the next picture here shows some wellbore instability of side loading causing casing failure happens a lot casing next failure. picture so, real quick on Sorry, that go ahead yeah you're re you're redrawing the casing, the cement casing that's supposed to hold formation back, and you can put all your tools inside of it for 50 years of producing. You, should, you know, your casing should be good to go for a long time. Mm -hmm. That shows there's holes in the casing. Mm -hmm. And what caused that? In situ stress. So it literally so blew out the casing while it was trying to cement and trying to harden up. It, it didn't let it harden up. It just it, it kept putting formation like into the wellbore or you know, what? Uh, no, it's it's not a <clears throat> it's not a formation injection type of a scenario. It would just be a case where you've got enough side loading happening in your yeah. borehole where the casing will start to buckle. Wow! And that that particular hole, um, you know, I don't know what exact uh, 
wellbore we're looking at with that image. That's I think that I got that picture from a JPT magazine cover a couple of years ago. But side loading of of casing is, wow. is very prominent in certain areas. Yeah. And yeah, eventually you can just shear that casing and you wow. can push it over by a foot. Wow. And you're not you're not re-entering that hole. No, you're not getting the rod pump on that thing. Yeah. Yeah. And a, you know, a foot would be extreme, but yeah, having shear, having casing shear off oh, is even, not un, it's not uncommon. Yeah, and even shifting a few inches is a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, we we 100%. do Wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, on the next picture, you see a geothermal operation where you've got an injection well and a producer getting fluid to circulate from that injection well to the producer, <clears throat> depending on the type of geothermal project, because there are different ways to do this. But if you've got an injection well and a producer and you want them to communicate, they frack the well. They call it permeability enhancement. They don't like to use the word frack, but you're fracking the well to get your injection, your cold water to circulate through that hot zone and come back up your producer. So that becomes a geomechanics scenario as well, where you need to understand that to design that frack. And then up at the top, you see a conventional frack in a shale, for instance, where you've got a number of stages <clears throat> where you're injecting your fluid, propant, all that kind of good stuff. And then you're, you're allowing that formation to flow. But it's been shown many times in the past 10 years that 30% of those stages contribute meaningful production to that well. And these laterals can be very long. They can be thousands and thousands of feet long. So are you telling me that in that 5,000 foot span, the rock strength and the stress condition doesn't change? Depends on the region. You might have something that's totally a cookie cutter. That's fine. That's not our client. But in a lot of areas, that strength varies and the stress varies. You'll have natural features that are that are changing those environments and causing those fracks to hit brick walls and not propagate. And that's why they don't contribute meaningful production to the well. That's mm-hmm. part of why. Mm-hmm. So another geomechanics uh, application. So this is, you know, what the patch deals with on day to day, partly for sure, when it comes to geomechanics. Now, the crux of that problem is that to understand the rock strength and the stress conditions involves those multiple tests that we talked about, taking cores, running mini fracks, logging tools, perhaps. And the core recovery isn't a certainty. You're not guaranteed to get a competent sample at surface that you can send to a lab. And what happens if that's the case? You redrill that well. You can't re-core a zone you already drilled out. Right. You got to trust the logs or some other way to, to get, try to get those <clears throat> yeah, mechanical properties. Or, or you skid the rig by five, skid the rig by five meters and do it again. Sheesh. That's what's done. You just drill another hole. If you really need that rock, <clears throat> you'll you'll skid the rig and you'll drill another hole. Wow. So there's a lot of inefficiency that go along with it. And the first year that I had experience with Caprock Integrity studies in the oil sands, we spent close to a million dollars. We ran a bunch of mini fracks. That was fine. But when it came to the coring. After waiting, I think it was nine months for the lab to give us our data, we had two samples that big from within one well, from within one vertical meter offset. <laughs> so what do you do with that? You, you got to go try to tell the government a story as to how you're going to design your steam chamber for this region with that information. You can't. <clears throat> but that is what happens when you're depending on core. 
So it was incredibly frustrating. And it costs, like I said, it costs us nearly a million dollars to do that, to fall on our face. And that's not an R&D play. That's standard stuff. But that is what happens now. So we went back the next year. We spent a ton of money on our MUD program to get better core recovery, which we did. We had a bunch more mini fracks. Still waited nine months to get our report. Wow. And even then, it is based on that disturbed core. So you're not quite sure how much you can trust what it says. And having said that, I have a lot of respect for the people that have come up with those processes and use those processes. But personally, it really frustrated me as a client because A, I didn't like the way, I didn't like the overall concept of the whole disturbed core thing. The costs, pretty frustrating. And the wait time, very frustrating. Depending on the size of the company, you might have multiple projects that people can go work on from time to time. Yeah. But if you're a small company and that is your baby and you're waiting, twiddling your thumbs, working on make work projects, find something to do, it's it's not great. So that problem uh, is is what I encountered. <clears throat> and as a client of that process, I, I knew that pain. So that's uh yeah that's that's what it is. Yeah, taking core in a structurally complex area might not be the best tool that we have and so you've come mm -hmm. up with another tool in structurally complex areas so core in other areas is a great way to do it but in structurally complex areas or certainly in this analogy uh in this area there's that's just not the solution uh so you come mm -hmm. up with another one okay you set us up good here yeah. i like this okay and if you think about if this was your core that you had to make some decisions based on and you didn't have time to drill into the well. You didn't have the budget. You didn't have the, the access, the seasonal access, because it's starting to warm up and your road is literally falling Oh, apart. man, you got to get the hell out of here. Yeah. <laughs> literally. So you got to wait a year to go try again. You, you, you literally might have to wait a year to go wow. try again. Wow. So if you're stuck with this core, if this is what you have to work with, the lab's going to maybe pick this particular spot or this little section to take a sidewall plug because it's competent there. So now you've high graded your data set because you're looking at the very strong section and you're saying that's what it is. Well, you got, I don't know, four meters of rock here. You're telling me the whole thing is that? Uh, no, it's not. You can see right. that it's not. Right. And and part of that is the coring process and things depressurizing and getting jostled and all that kind of stuff. Right. But you just don't know. So at least by looking at it in situ, even if this is the in situ state, which it wouldn't, most likely, but if it was this way in the in-situ state, you would see that in real time yeah. and you would move the tool and test the next spot. Huh. You're not dependent on trying to get a different core from a different depth. You can just move the tool in real time and see that it's not competent or whatever the case is, right? So anyway, oh, cool. I get a little passionate about all this stuff sometimes. Well, you okay, lived so we it, talked man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we talked about the problem and the importance of that information. So this was the solution that we came up with to solve that problem. Take the lab underground and perform mechanical tests in situ, see the data in real time, watch the response in real time, and create an equivalent data set that people can then apply in the same ways. So I built this tool I invented this tool in 2013 and got a patent, raised my funding and built it, uh, had it engineered and designed over the next couple of years. We had this thing running field trials in 2016. So the market was garbage by then, unfortunately. 
but that that shallow prototype had a lot of issues. We had we had a ton of success in in the lab. We had some successes in the field, but we we really learned how not to do it more than anything else. Um, getting something that works nicely on a bench in controlled conditions to actually function downhole. I didn't know anything about that. And the fellows that were involved in that design were not of that ilk to really design an oil and gas tool. So it just didn't go well. We had, a, like I said, we had a ton of failures. We had some successes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ran it with a few different clients in the oil sands. We ran it on a, th- a few of our own test wells that we drilled. And um, yeah, it was tough. I, I didn't have uh, some, any good invoices coming in. Um, the market was awful. Couldn't raise any more money. And I wandered in the desert for a couple of years, broke. Wow. I sold my truck, sold my wife's car, sold all of my investments, all my savings wow. to keep the company afloat. And once in a while, I'd have enough to change a fitting and change a thread design and go try again. But then the tool would leak again and I couldn't replace the electronics. I didn't know enough personally to know what to do about it. And I, I couldn't hire people who did know. So it was pretty brutal, but uh, wow. we got a a tap on the shoulder in 2017 from Saudi Aramco. And that was a game changer for us because people took us seriously at that point. Um, the Alberta government, they've got a group called Alberta Innovates and they provide grants for all sorts of technology efforts, technology development efforts. So once Aramco came to the table, Alberta Innovates put up a sizable grant to help us get started on the new tool. Nice. The high high pressure and high temperature version, because this prototype was not meant for high pressures or high temperatures. It could work in the shallow oil sands world. That's fine. But that's a very small piece of the market and it had completely collapsed in Alberta. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, it was great when Aramco came calling and it took quite a while and resulted in us incorporating it in, in Houston. But uh, we managed to get an R&D agreement, R&D agreement signed with Aramco. And I grew the company from myself to now there's 15 full-time staff and a couple wow. of consultants. I just made an offer last night to a geomechanics engineer as well. Nice. To get an internal research team built. And um, so this is what it is. This is the new tool. This is the high-pressure, high-temperature version of that prototype. Same functionalities with the addition of a gamma song as well, just for some locating in the borehole. Uh, but you can see it incorporates a mini frack and something called an intelligent packer, which is actually a civil engineering tool called a pressure meter, which is basically an instrumented packer. And then something called a shear head, <clears throat> which duplicates a number of lab tests, but it basically performs a scratch test on the wellbore wall. Wow. Is so this, this instrument, tool... sorry, go ahead. These tools are all strung together in in one wellbore. That's a mm-hmm. thou, that's a thousand feet long. No, no, this this this, oh, this thing inches. Here is Those yeah, are yeah, inches. Inches, yeah. yeah, it's one hundred and five feet long. I was looking at the uh, almost a double dash. I can see it now, uh, but man, I was looking at that as a single dash up front. I'm going, is that that's one hundred and ninety seven <laughs> feet? No, no, no. Okay, got it. Right, we're in meters. Yeah. We're in inches. Okay, yeah, it is still a big tool, but. You know, tool strings get long. That's for sure. They get long oh, quickly. Yeah. There's a lot going on, and there's a small envelope to do a lot of things in. So they they just get long. Yeah, wireline. You know, typically now in in the Permian, uh, just for petrophysical stuff, gamma ray, neutron density, resistivity, sonics. You know, they string all that together in one, and I think it's 200 feet long, something like that. So Ooh, if, you, if you don't have wow. 200 foot past your formation, you're you're kind of missing. 
some of yeah. that and and then you, but you know you just do one pull instead of doing four individual pulls it takes mm -hmm. three days you do it all at once <laughs> yeah. but it's a really long tool so so this adds up to not that much you're looking at uh 12, 18 feet another 15 feet yeah 24 yeah so you're yeah, 105 feet this this picture is a little okay. bit outdated but the the tool is 105 feet as it stands now right on. about six thousand pounds so you can a couple of us to lift it <laughs> bring stan yeah, out right. there he'll help you lift yeah, some of this stuff up. uh so yeah you you definitely get typically a, a good 100 feet past the hole or past the zone you know in a in a you know typical drill program so that's that works that's that's good you get full data uh from mm -hmm. you know from bottom of target to all the way through yep all right so we'll go through the Excuse <clears throat> me, the different functionalities on the tool, starting with the Minifrac. Minifrac is that low volume, high pressure fluid injection, hence the big pump. <clears throat> we have a number of ways to perform the pumping. We can do it from surface and inject through the drill pipe or coil tubing, or we can pump down hole and use the wellbore fluid as your injection fluid, which I don't like to promote, or use an onboard fluid supply for that injection fluid, which has its limitations as well. But at least you've got a clean fluid being injected into your formation. You're not damaging your reservoir with that test. So there's a number of parameters you see. We're not going to read them all. On the left is to the data that can come out of the Minifrac test. And then you see the plot of a common analysis software that the injection and fall off data goes into to analyze and, and pull those parameters out of that injection test. So you've got your fluid injection, you cause breakdown to happen, you propagate your fracture for a couple minutes and then you shut in, allow that fluid to come back at you and you can do it manually as well. That's called a flowback, which accelerates the test greatly and is done up here a lot. Um, a lot of operators I've talked to in the States and overseas aren't familiar with a flowback for whatever reason. They just do a fall off and allow it to happen naturally, but that takes days, not hours. So we like to do a, we like to do a, a flow back cycle. Um, this slide here speaks to our particular system, shows that it's flow back and fall off capable. And you see some of the realities of R&D. A lot of times people look at a business and they say, oh, look, these guys are so great. They're so lucky and they've done so well. There's a lot of failures that go on. And you have to fail yeah. to learn how not to do it. And wow. it's tough and it's expensive and it sets you back months and makes you cry and yell at people <laughs> and act like a dick. And <laughs> it, that's it. Raw tooth and claw, man. Yeah. yeah. You get better right. at it every time. That's and, right. Uh, educate yourself and educate your process. And the team learns a ton and yeah. figure out great ways to do it. So as we developed our own proprietary packers for this system, we had a ton of failures and you can see some of those here. You see oil leaking out of the element yeah. on the one side. And then you see a massive hole. It looks like someone took a shotgun to the element. Yeah. Um, we do have a completely different design now. It's, it's big. These, these elements were, were quite small. These, these little test jobbies, but the final elements are, are, are about uh, three and a half feet long. But what's unique about our system, A, we can run it on pipe, jointed pipe. We can run it on oil tubing and we can run it on wireline allowing us to pump from surface or pump down hole. And not everybody can do that. What's also unique about it is that differential rating on our packer system. And having said this, this part of our tool has not been built yet. 
this is all engineering design and parts have been built and tested, but this part mm -hmm. has not been fully built out yet, but we're designed for a 14 and a half thousand PSI differential pressure. Our Packer system can actually do 18,000 PSI differential, but the rest of the system is not designed for 18. <clears throat> wow. Now to put some of that in perspective, when it comes to injection into a target zone, yeah, dealing with the hydrostatic pressure downhole, and you're dealing with the injection pressure, which is on top of that hydrostatic. So the difference between the hydrostatic head and the injection pressure, that's your pressure differential. And all the big service companies now, their packer systems can typically handle seven or 8,000 PSI differential pressure. Uh-huh. Ours you're is double that. Double that. And that means you can, you, uh, okay, so a typical frack gets up to like seven, eight, thousand pounds differential to get a, a frack put away or what's the well the the difference between the, there's a lot of different frack designs but the mini frack um a little bit different definitely a, a different purpose but uh, a differential pressure on a frack isn't necessarily going to be ten thousand psi but it can be absolutely yeah. depending on the environment you're in and the depth that you're at right and the hoop stresses that have formed due to drilling you can have some serious differential pressure that you have to overcome to create a frack whether it's for a mini frack test for diagnostic testing purposes or whether it's the actual frack so this system of ours will allow us to do this diagnostic test at very very high pressures differential wow. pressures so wow. we're excited about that but this part hasn't been built yet it's the last part that we're focusing on for a couple of reasons one being cash flow and two, not overwhelming our vendors so that we can get something built in a timely fashion. If you, you drop an elephant on someone's plate, they'll be pretty slow to eat that elephant. But if you give them a leg and then you give them an ear, it gets done. So one piece at a time. And the other sections of the tool are considered to be more inventive than a mini frack because everybody in a dog have mini frack or defit systems already. Mm -hmm. So we didn't want to, this isn't a me too product. Uh, overall, the inside tool I'm saying, but the mini frack is is very similar. Besides that differential rating and that flow back capability, uh, it's a similar process to everybody else. So that's part of why we didn't uh, rush to get it out first. Okay. Now the the backbone of this technology, the inside tool, is is the intelligent packer, the mini frack has a lot of valid applications and it always will. It's been around since 1930, the mini frack application based on the defense. Um, pressure, the intelligent packer is, is basically a pressure meter, which is a civil engineering tool that's been around since 1954, used by civil engineers to measure ground strength for all sorts of subsurface activities, uh, skyscrapers, hmm. ground strength and, and foundation strength and, and whatnot around the planet <clears throat> with something called cavity expansion theory forming the the rear end of all the math that goes into understanding what's happening when you inflate uh, a packer against the rock or soil and then interpreting that that cavity as it changes dimensions and grows as you increase pressure hmm. so if you think about any other any packer you guys understand packers i'm sure they swell up down hole and squeeze up against the the hole mm -hmm. in all directions at the same time. Yep. Yep. And there's a number of ways 
ways to activate fractures, whether it's a swellable packer, like you just described, or whether it's a mechanically set packer where you're going to compress it, forcing it to squeeze, mm. kind of squish out and squeeze against the level wall, or whether it's inflatable and uh, pumping hydraulic fluid through it causes it to expand. Mm. So ours is an inflatable system uh, done with hydraulics and onboard fluid supply. Every section of our tool is controlled hydraulically and they have their own independent clean fluid supply that's completely inter interdependent independent sorry from one section to another and we'll uh, look at some of those pictures but basically if you imagine a packer expanding against the borehole wall applying force mm -hmm. if you're measuring the force you're applying very very closely accurately and you're measuring the displacement you're creating mm -hmm. you can actually measure the rebound when you deflate the packer you can measure how that rock pushes back against you right on. so if you imagine inflating a packer and then deflating it slightly and then inflating it again at a higher pressure cycle and deflating it slightly and running that inflate deflate at higher pressure stages several times four or five times this is exactly what a pressure meter is it's an inf it's an in instrumented packer okay it's just that simple and yeah. by watching that unloading behavior from the rock mm -hmm. you you pull a ton of geomechanical data out of the out of the back math a cavity expansion theory so again you see a big list of parameters here there's a ton of other parameters that come out of our software depending on the test design and the overall objectives you can run that test in different ways to simulate uh, or create a drained condition versus an undrained condition and things like this hmm. but the plot on the right on the bottom shows you raw data and it shows you those pressure plateaus Okay. And the unloading cycle that's occurred, you see those uh, those tails, yeah. those are called unload reload loops. And putting a best fit line through that loop gives the software what it wants to pull all the geomechanical data out of that specific zone. Interesting. This so basically yeah. you're looking at elasticity. Yeah, this is looking at elastic properties. Yeah. And uh the packers a couple feet long. It's testing a couple feet of the rock at a, at a time. Is that about yep, right? Two, three feet. Two, yeah, three, two feet. three feet on average for pressure meters. And right like I said, pressure meters have been around since the 1950s. And there are a number of organizations that have been using them in different ways. But this is the most powerful pressure meter on the planet by about four times. And so, Stan, correct me if I'm wrong. You're testing the elasticity of the rock so you can get a you can get a in situ compressive strength and direction you get a vector and direction on your yeah that's just some of the things you can get back i mean he's talking about a lot more stuff but that one would be pretty pretty interesting is certainly for the idea of modern stresses you know which way the, sure. the whole area is kind of stressing well let's expand on that can can you uh determine the uh, stress field from using all this equipment 100 mm -hmm. percent that's what I think. That's one of the it's one of the the main purposes of this instrument is yeah. to determine. <clears throat> so if you're in a not only sorry, go ahead. if you're in this kind of this rhombochasm shearing hole environment, you know, and it's yeah. and we think regional stress direction today is 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 putting the whole field in in one way or another. Yeah, you can determine what that is. One one well, you go down there. Well, yeah, you do it all over the field, maybe, and it might change a little bit, but. A lot of it you can do out of one well, yeah. 
Wow. Right. Yeah, on. So doing it in a vertical, doing it in the vertical as well as the horizontal is, is going to be very interesting to observe. Uh, you can see stress anisotropy sure. and stress orientation as well as stress magnitude. Now, very originally cool. when we started playing with that, mm -hmm. the different rock types, the different rock types will have different results as you go down a lateral, or you go up and down a vertical. Yeah. Well, they, there's, there's, Mythology changes all over the place, and depending on which specific your formation you're in, that formation is going to be reacting differently to the in situ yep. stresses than whatever's above or below it. Cool. Um, and given the you know the variability that can be seen in certain places, um, it's it's important to keep keep an eye on that because the these things aren't aren't cookie cutter a lot of times. That's right. The formation the formation changes. And there are places where it's very consistent and that's fine, but places where it's not, it's a big deal. Um, our tool has got 12 different sensors measuring the displacement. So it gives you six planes of travel, six planes of visibility around that cavity to see that stress and isotropy and um, cool. give you that orientation as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is a, this is a big chunk of our data set. Now, what you see here is the tool itself designed to apply 14,500 PSI to the wellbore wall. It's got its own independent hydraulic system. We talked about those 12 sensors measuring the six wow. stress orientation planes. Mm -hmm. Picture on the bottom left is some heat testing to make sure that the system is, is going to be okay when you're at temperature. Bottom right, you see what's called a uh, packer resetting unit. When you've got rubber elements at depth and temperature, they don't necessarily react well to getting pushed around a bunch mm -hmm. of times. So making sure that you overcome or supplement the elastic memory in that rubber, you can sometimes want to give it a, a little bit of a helping hand to return it to its home position. So this packer resetting unit does that. This picture on the bottom right shows the bench version of that. In the middle on the right, you see the actual downhole version of that. And on the top, you see the actual hydraulic power unit. And we have, uh, we've got four of these on the tool. One is a little smaller, but we've got uh, three that are similar in size for the other physical functionalities. Cool. This slide speaks to there how you go. approach a non-round borehole, because we know that these elliptical boreholes are all over the place and they don't stay round forever. And Vertical holes aren't actually vertical, they're corkscrewed and vertical horizontal wells aren't flat, they're up and down and side to side. Uh, and it's the same with the actual geometry of that borehole. It, it's not actually a perfect cylinder. So accounting for that is what this slide speaks to. And there's a number of different modeling approaches that can be used to handle those circumstances. Now, the third physical test that we do is called the shear head test. And it's basically a, a downhole shear box or a downhole scratch test. You can see why we call it a scratch test because it scratches the borehole wall. And we've done this with our prototype. We've also done it with the insight tool in test barrels. And we've compared that data to core in the shallow tool and in the deep tool. I haven't actually reviewed our report yet from our geomechanics expert as to the core comparison with the insight tool, but that, that's fine. Hmm. Something that I like to make sure people are aware of is that none of the intelligent packer or the shear head have ever been performed at depth. No one's ever done this in hard rock at these types of pressures. 
and there's going to be a lot of learnings. There's going to be a lot of failures. There's going to be a lot of existing math that needs to be modified. And there's going to be a lot of new math that's got to get created as we observe <clears throat> the physics as to what's actually going on when you perform these physical tests to the rock, things that have never been done. So right. we will need to develop a lot of processes and a lot of math and various algorithms and pull some AI in here and there, I'm sure, in time. But uh, understanding the physics and applying that to geomechanical outcomes is going to be a, a big part of what we focus on for the next uh, few years here, for sure. What sort of depths are you good down to and comfortable with at this point? 5,000 meters. Oh, man. It's so 16, yeah. 17,000 feet. Yeah. Yeah. 20,000 PSI is our collapse rating. Okay. And 330 Fahrenheit, 165 Celsius. Oh, man. Yeah. So cool. So that'll take us to a lot of places. Yeah. And there's definitely room to improve on that. But whatever. You start somewhere. Yeah. You crawl before you walk and you walk before you run. And even then, those are good numbers. Not my son. My son is running. And he just barely learned how to walk. So I don't know. Some people oh, yeah. just start running. I don't know what that's <laughs> Just like dad. <laughs> sure. Okay. So this slide just uh, presents a couple of the questions that we're trying to wrap our heads around with what's actually going on down hole with this process. If you're applying a normal force to the wall, wall. So basically the shear head, let's go back here. You see this cone? We take these cones and they're on, they're on the ends of hydraulic ramps, and you punch them into the rock at different depths of penetration. Mm, okay. And then once you've applied that force, you then scratch. So you think of these radial rams moving away from each other. There's actually six of them located around the, the, the circumference of the tool. And you think of those rams pushing these cones into the borehole wall. Right. Then you've got another ram that causes that section of the tool to shift just like a sleeve or any other hydraulic cylinder. <clears throat> and if that ram is engaged, you now create a scratch because you're moving perpendicular to that normal direction. And that's, that's how we form the scratch. And here you can see that those scratches are at different penetration depths. Yeah. Oops. So this slide shows the anchor that's part of that system shows some of the raw data that's coming from our bench testing as we started to uh, assemble the shear head. On the bottom, you see a scratch test. We sent a bunch of core down to Houston, a great a great lab called MetaRock. We've got a lot of friends there, ran a bunch of tests for us, scratch testing, triaxial testing, tensile strength testing, stuff like that. And we're now comparing our bench data to all those cores that we sent down there. And this slide, shows you a bit of an animation as to what's physically happening. So you see that penetration cycle and then the scratch cycle. So in this circumstance, you've got the rock spalling, chipping away, basically. Mm -hmm. you've, you've created some, some tensile failure and chipping that rock out. Uh, the top animation shows how as you penetrate that rock with your cone, yeah, that force cool. transmits into the rock and perpetuates through all that that poor, poor space and whatnot in the in the rock. <clears throat> in the middle, you see a big formula that I certainly am not going to attempt to explain because I can't. But this is what the gym mechanics can see in the background. The and sum then you of see a picture of our, one of our test barrels that we put the insight tool shear head into to create those scratches. So this material is a 50 MPA compressive strength, whereas 
on the shallow tool, we use a 5 MPA compressive strength to test with. So depending on the material type, depending on the depth of burial, depending on the geometry of that cone, the, the overall setup of the test, there's going to be a lot of different results, and we'll have to figure out how to handle all of it because it's never been done. So we got a lot to learn. There's a long ways to go. Man, at least this, I don't... I'm glad I don't see right. the imaginary sign in any of that math, at least. <laughs> but sheesh, yeah, that, that's, that's, some... that's some black magic going on right there. You didn't <laughs> want to get into that, Troy. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm out. This speaks stand. to some of the different well, failure not... mechanisms that we know will occur, depending on the rock type, depending on the depth of burial. There's going to be different forms of failure that we will observe. So wrapping our heads around what is physically going on in situ is part of what uh, will be going on as we move forward. Right on. Yeah. Another important part of that assembly is the anchor. So if you think about applying that normal force with your rams and then applying a perpendicular motion to that force, the shear force, normal force versus shear force, you need to make sure that you don't actually move the tool. You only want to move that one section so that you scratch the rock. Mm -hmm. Because you could theoretically bite into a hard rock start trying to scratch but your ram is now actually moving your tool and reacting that force into your drill string you don't want that to happen so we have an anchor that holds that section in one spot so that when you start that scratch cycle it moves the actual shear head not the tool so we got a little video here you can see this wedge system it's just a slip downhole slip same as anybody else's but ours has a mechanically activated uh, wedge to push those slips into the borehole wall. And once you've anchored the tool, you can then start the, the scratch cycle. So we put this into one of those 50 MPA concrete barrels and set the slips and tried to yard it out with another ram and the concrete broke before the anchor would slip. So that was a successful test because that, that is a pretty hard material. In the middle, you see some of the bench test prototyping that goes on with R&D. We had our idea for how we could work with these forces in that envelope for the, uh, the radial ram section. So we built a small mock-up. And as soon as it got to the shop, I called everybody down and had them watch the engineers assemble it. And they didn't like that because nobody, people are afraid to fail, especially in front of people. They think they look like a chump if they fail. That's but right. You need to accept that it's not the case. You need to accept that. It's going to happen and it's okay. And it simply informs your next decision. So I made them do this very first test with everybody watching. And uh, it was scary for the engineers, but <laughs> it's good. Man. Right on. And, and, and this, oh, yeah. what's that? Never mind. <laughs> okay. So, so, you know, luckily, and like I said, it, it isn't really even a luck thing because it's okay to fail. Uh, this thing did work the first time out of the box. Oh, wow. So you can see that ram moving. Yeah. That is how the radial rams activate and move in the borehole. Six helically oriented around the borehole wall. Huh. So that was the bench top model. We cycled that thing eight or 900 times at 20,000 PSI, and it was perfectly happy. So then we knew that we could advance to the actual downhole build because the downhole tool is very expensive. So it so don't go. Go ahead. Penetrates the rock. What a couple inches? Is that Not an even. inch? Mm. Yeah. No, I wish. It's, it's only a few millimeters. It's up mm. to six millimeters. Six millimeters. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's like but a, it's not even half an inch. That's actually quite a bit compared to some of the lab processes that are out there. Um, the amount of material you're actually in contact with is is shocking. Cool. Or the lack of material that you're in contact with with some with some tests is shocking. <laughs> but um, so you see the the radial ram head, yeah, on the right, and there's two of them. They butt up against each other, so you have those six rams within about uh, a ten inch elevation of each right. other. So that's the uh, radial ram section. You don't and have any way the, of uh, recovering any of the rocks that you pulverize, do you? No. No, and some of it is dust, some of it is small, right. small fragments. Yeah. This piece is the axial ram. So we talked about that radial ram moving and applying normal force. When you start to move perpendicular to that normal direction, you're now applying shear force. So this is how we apply the shear force. You can see this ram moving. It's got a four-inch travel. And those videos are the actual tool moving at its actual speed. This test takes five minutes and you run that multiple times at different depths of penetration in situ. So you can test 50 places if you want in a matter of hours. Mm. So that's the axial ram. <clears throat> Doesn't look like a lot, but on the inside, there's some tremendous mechanical engineering that's been done by our guys. We've got an incredible team here that I'm so proud of to get this thing to change dimensions under pressure that's not normal because you see at surface on a piece of construction equipment there's hoses all over the place there's things that are taking up that movement but this all has to happen in the actual id of the tool on the bottom you see the uh, nose cone you see a centralizer and then you see one of the shear head rams so this slide's a little bit old our field head field trials for this particular tool were supposed to happen last month but we had a mechanical issue with the vendor problem and I'm not passing the buck, but that's what happened. And um, it's being resolved now. So we'll be in the field in about two, three weeks oh, with right field on. trials for this, nice. field trials for this guy. Where in Texas or up in Canada? No, up in Canada. Yeah. yeah I'd a... like to test this uh, in the States, but there's several logistics and, uh, and logistical and, Legal. operational and legal mm. border crossing issues and stuff like that. So we'll do it locally for now. Now these are the flex joints, which allow us to run through a build section to get the tool into a horizontal. This is just one of the oh, cool. uh, threaded collars that's part of that assembly, but basically you have a, a smaller ID of pipe that can take up the bend nice. so that the stiff sections that are where your electronics or hydraulics are passing through things, you don't want those to bend because right. you'll, you'll break your seals and, right. and leak, <clears throat> especially at depth. So we have multiple flex joints in the tool. And that's basically it. Um, the rest Very of cool. it is, like I said, that's part of the investment presentation. Uh, but yeah, right now we're on track to get that shear head to the field in the next uh, couple, three weeks. And then the intelligent pack is right behind it. Sometime in August, it should be getting wet. And then the mini frack sometime in November, December. That's cool. That's really cool. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> what I think of when I when I hear this and now that I know a little bit more about it is is kind of how uh, operators in the unconventional play are trying to figure out kind of frack hits, trying to figure out, mm. you know, which direction these fracks are really going, where are they connecting the most, you know, what angles is all that. And 
you know, you know, you you know, you don't necessarily have to go into every individual well to figure that out, or at least that's what I'm getting from this technology. You can you can map out a, around the acreage. You know, maybe forty thousand, fifty thousand acres. You can you can get some vertical well data from this tool that confirms the stress directions at the reservoir and confirms you know how this system is is under stress and then that's going to tell you which way the the overall fracks are going to preferentially break and go and so then you can start getting an idea of how your frack kits are going how your wells are in communicating you know in communication which fracks went where if you don't have micro seismic on everything you have this ability to map how your asset is is going to structurally communicate right stan yeah. Um, can you actually get good data on the orientation of the fractures themselves? Well, in theory, that are in the rock. If you if you were set up with the intelligent packer in an offset well during a frack, you might be able to see some stress changes and see which direction they're coming from. Okay. Yes. So we haven't, we haven't done that. Okay. So you're obtaining an implied fracture orientation from your stress test. Uh, no, the, the stress values that come out of the tool are the actual in-situ orientations and magnitudes. Right. But when you, when you apply stress with a frack, you change those stress fields and you right. create stress shadows and you create different interactions with different formation barriers and, and mythologies and, and this sort of thing, <clears throat> how that relates to the region, it depends on, on the region. Mm -hmm. Um, what we typically talk to operators about and other service companies is that we can run this. Maybe let's say it's once per pad. You run this down a horizontal well and you take all your measurements and then you use those physical direct measurements to calibrate the region mm -hmm. where other technologies are being applied on, on the, the quick and dirty, not that they're dirty, but they're fast and they're very affordable. And if you use those other technologies that are based on pace on data or some offset well yeah. strain measurements or whatever the case is, but it's calibrated to an actual physical measurement from a certain location, you could, in theory, calibrate your region. That's right. Based on the anchor in that whichever, whichever hole you tested. So if you do that, you know, if you did that once a pad and you applied your other technologies using the calibration data that was physically obtained from within the lateral, you're laughing, I, I think. Oh, <laughs> Honestly, nice. I wear rose-colored glasses, but it, if something is logical, then I go with it. I think yeah. it's pretty logical. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, well, let's, uh, let's unshare the screen and we'll talk about going into the completion part the PBE podcast with Corey Fair. Mm -hmm. Got that right. Uh, sure did. Right on. And uh, thank you for taking the time on doing that presentation. Is that kind of how you expect to go with Urtech? Is that kind of what your your plan is? The the what we just walked through. You're going to go into Urtech and kind of give that at you pitch. Yeah, that'll be uh, a shorter presentation. You only have 15 minutes, including questions. With at Urtech. Oh, at UPIT, it's mm -hmm. that short. Okay. I knew it was short. I, could, yeah. I couldn't remember that. Okay. 
Yeah. So I think you're supposed to give yourself 10 or 12 minutes to actually present and then you handle questions. And there's a lot of information on that presentation, obviously. So right. to talk about the problem and to talk about the solution and then the individual functionalities briefly would kind of all be all that a guy has time for. Right. And the purpose of you pitch is kind of getting there to get in front of folks that might be interested into investing in your company, progressing it in, in which way you have the vision and, and the company going. Isn't that right? Generally, that's what's going on. Yep. Yep. We're always on the sniff for investment for sure. Investment accelerates operations and hiring and purchasing components and making backups and this kind of thing. So we're, <clears throat> excuse me, we're always entertaining investment conversations. Uh, once you start to take on investment, it's a treadmill that you kind of never get off of until you've got enough organic revenue to develop multi-million dollar tools every year. You need investment yeah. or grants. We've, we've stayed alive by generating revenue, obviously. But it's not enough to support this activity. We we get some money from grants. We have the R&D agreement with Aramco. Then we take on investments. We became RRSP and TFSA eligible in Canada in January, which is basically the Canadian version of a 401k. So people can invest into us through a tax shelter now. Oh, wow. So that's been, that's been helpful lately. A lot of our employees have utilized that because you can take money from an RRSP and move it over here without penalty. So people have done that. Um, within the organization to uh, get some more ownership, uh, but also to uh, provide that capital that every company needs. Um, cool. The other part of Vertec will just be exposure in general, um, putting our name in people's mouths and answering questions and increasing exposure is it's it's part of it for sure. Okay, well, right yeah. on. So, what? Uh, how, how do you see the next three to five years going? Uh, what's your expectations on on kind of the 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 industry? Uh, obviously, you're going for mining, you're going for oil and gas. You know, CCUS. You 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 have a technology that can be applied in a lot of different industries. Uh, how mm -hmm. do you? How are you as a founder, CEO, and the visionary, the entrepreneur? How are you? You know, seeing the next three to five years go for Integrity in Situ. Uh, what are you focusing on? Yeah, that's a good question. We're focused on getting a tool to market for one that's speed to market is critical for any new technology. Um, the market itself has changed dramatically since COVID ended. Well, went back to 70, 75 bucks, which is great. Things are going to happen at that price. And it's very tragic and, and, and awful that the people of the Ukraine uh, are the ones driving the current price uh, that, that the war in the Ukraine is, uh, pushing the industry to make hay while this price is what it is. Um, but regardless of whether it's $75 oil or Nothing $110 like oil, what's that? Nothing like a war. A World War II was very good for a lot of people in this country too. It drives the economy and yeah. it's really, uh, it's a shame that that's what, what it is. But um, the market is responding accordingly, obviously. And whether it's $75 oil or $110 oil, I think that because of the push for green energy, clean energy, all this kind of stuff, people are taking CO2, for instance, from refineries and factories. You compress it, put it in a pipeline, and you inject it into a formation down hole. And it's got to be done in a very certain way, and it's got to be kept there by a cap rock. So the geomechanics involved there will be 
a huge industry for us for 10 or 20 years. I don't know. Until we're running on nuclear fission, oil and gas is going to be a thing. And even when we are running on nuclear fission, if that's 10 years from now or 110 years from now, won't be that long, oil will still be there as a feedstock because it's used in so many manufacturing processes as a raw material, right? For plastic or for steel and you name it. There's not a lot of things that don't have some sort of hydrocarbon tie. Yeah. So we are definitely getting our tool to market as soon as possible. And once we've done it in the patch, we'll certainly be putting a lot more emphasis on getting into the mining world. We've had a lot of conversations with miners that definitely see the application and want the tool, but it's a big step to go from, understanding and appreciating something to signing a piece of paper that says here's your PO or here's the investment because without something in writing from a client um, you don't just go drop five million dollars on something you think they might like so getting to that point with the civil and mining world is is a ways away but it's certainly happening with the patch and um, the next step for the technology will be to take it offshore because that's going to be a Another significant market and mm-hmm. upsizing the technology is actually relatively simple. And we've had a lot of conversations with offshore operators already. <clears throat> and we've, we'd already been invited to an offshore project that we couldn't attend because the tool wasn't built. Dang. But uh, that market is going to be important for us. And oh, yeah. You look at what more stability issues on an offshore rig, that time is incredibly expensive. So you can't have those problems. And you want to understand as much about those environments as possible because they're so environmentally sensitive. So that data becomes even that much more important for those folks. Um, so there's there's a lot of room to grow. And in the next three to five years, I expect this to be generating a lot of uh, very positive cash flow through running the tool. Our, our business model is to run the tool ourselves as a service company. Okay. But we can also license the technology and the software to other service companies. We don't sell the tool to people. We can license it right. along with the software, uh, or we can run it ourselves. <clears throat> uh, whether we're still here in our current form in a year, three years, five years, or whether we've been acquired by somebody else and integrated into some other technology packages remains to be seen, but we're perfectly okay with, with any of those avenues. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Um, I would like to, uh, I want, uh, yeah. Do I want to ask it now the completion or the setup of the introduction? Now that I'm thinking out loud, I guess completion, you know, what, what is it that it, what tip, what does it take to get you, your crew and your tool out into a field and down, you know, 20 wells to, to test the, the, the regional stresses and try to start mapping things out. What is that? What would that cost? Uh, the market price at the moment in onshore North America is 250 K us per well, 250,000 per well. Yep. Right on. And that tests the whole well, just the reservoir. That's just wherever the client wants. Basically it's up to the client to decide how comfortable they are having the hole open. Right. And, with a tool in the open hole as well. That's a big thing for drillers. They don't like that. Right. <laughs> it's always uh, quite a conversation. <clears throat> but depending on how how they see this data, they'll do it. They understand it. They need it. And the alternatives are just not acceptable. Yeah. So um, whether it's uh, one day in the hole or two days in the hole, 
Yeah, that that price covers that, and you okay. can test. Uh, you know, you could test thirty stations with the shear head, and you could test ten stations with the intelligent packer, and two or three with the mini frac in twenty four hours. Wow, wow, yeah, that was my next my follow up questions. Yeah, really, really interesting to think about, and uh, I'm definitely going to be following the story of integrity in situ, and uh, I appreciate. Uh, you coming on the show. I appreciate you sharing your time with us and uh, and teaching us more about this. And um, uh, we're definitely rooting for you and, and we want to stay in touch. Awesome. So I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your audience. <clears throat> Excuse me, Troy. Uh, like I said, it's always a, a, a flattering experience when somebody asks for your time and when they're willing to give you theirs. So I, I appreciate that. And I'll definitely reach out the next time in Houston. We'll, uh, we'll grab a beverage and get to know each other a little more and have a good time. I like it, Corey. Sounds good, man. Uh, take Thank care, you. and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right. Bye now.